Well, good morning. Thanks for being here. I, I absolutely love that song that we just experienced. It's called What If by Nicole Nordeman, and I love it as much for why it was written as for the quality of the music itself. Nicole had a relationship with a guy who was a skeptic, you know, kind of an agnostic or atheist, and they were spending an evening together, and this friend was kind of at war with her over who was right and who was wrong, and is Jesus real or isn't Jesus real, and as anyone who truly embraces the idea of Jesus, he was just passionate for what he was missing because he wasn't understanding who Jesus really was in her mind. And so after he left, she stayed up and she began penning the words that ultimately make up this song. And just with all the empathy that you can imagine, she, she asked the question, what if you're right? You know, what, what if Jesus is just another nice guy, just another self-proclaimed prophet, just another king who only had a moment on this planet and then became irrelevant? What if you're right? And her thought process just basically says, well, then you're right. Then there really isn't any hope. Then we really are, you know, locked into our failures and who we are and how we've identified ourselves, then this world really is in a mess, then despair really should be our kind of overall attitude towards the world. But then she asks, what if you're wrong? What if, what if there's more? What if there's hope you never dreamed of hoping for? And in that she's saying, what if Jesus is really who he said he was? She said, this is important for you to consider because if you're wrong, then you're going to miss everything only he can bring into your life. He came to give us life and life to the full, he said, and you'll never know that if you're wrong. I believe we live in a world, I believe we live in a culture where a lot of people just conclude based upon culture's view and their academic experiences and their media exposure that, you know, Jesus just isn't who he said he was. And they don't really look into this question. And, and if they're wrong, they're missing everything. And so that's really what lies behind this weekend's talk. We're in this series called Picture This, and this weekend we're asking you to take a moment at least to picture something that isn't often pictured in our culture, which is kind of difficult to picture in our world, in our lives. But picture this. Jesus is God. And it's important that you take a moment to consider this because embracing Christianity demands believing, ultimately, that God really did become one of us, that Jesus was and is and always has been God. I mean, look at what John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and verse 14 says. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now here, Jesus is being called the Word, logos in the Greek, and it's simply saying that God has written his word to us. God has given us his word, and now Jesus is the living expression of all that God has given to us in his scriptures. He's the living word, the living revealing of God and his truth. And he says, and this man, Jesus, who is the word, was with God and was God. He was with God in the beginning. In fact, through him, the Bible says, all things were made. 
The one who said, and then spoke the world into existence. Is this one now walking with them on the planet, Jesus? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen here on this planet his glory. The glory of the one and the only, the original creator, the, the one who came from the Father and is full of grace and truth. Picture this, Jesus is God. It's what the Bible claims. Now, this is very difficult as an idea for many in our world to embrace. And if we're honest, even those of us who claim it, who trust it, who believe it, we have to at least admit this is a bizarre concept. This is a challenging idea that the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who took the dust of his own creation and fashioned humanity in it and breathed life into it, that this one then took on dust himself and walked among us. Challenging, bizarre idea. But when you don't just dismiss it as being unreasonable, when you don't just dismiss it as being unintelligent, when you look at it seriously and objectively, here's the truth you're going to discover. Believing Jesus to be God is both reasonable and intelligent. To be intelligent, you don't just have to dismiss this. In fact, you don't have to check your brain at the door in order to follow Jesus. I believe you have to turn your brain on. I believe many people have checked their brain at the door, and that's why they've just concluded that dismissing him's logical when it's not logical at all in the end. Last week's talk showed how turning to the Bible for answers is both reasonable and intelligent. I encourage you to listen to it if you haven't heard it yet, and so we're going to turn to it as a part of the source for looking at who this man Jesus really was. But if we're going to see Jesus for who he claimed to be as being both reasonable and intelligent to accept and believe, then there are some things we have to consider. And it starts with his claims. Because he made some claims that are pretty phenomenal. He he claimed to be God. Now, there are a bunch of people who say those claims have been put on him. He never made those claims himself. But it's just not true. In John chapter 5, verse 18, the Bible says he was even calling God his own father. And in doing so, with the language he was using, what he was inferring, he was making himself equal with God. He was claiming to be God. And those around him in that day knew it. And that's why, if you read the first part of John 5, 18, they were trying to kill him. They thought he was blaspheming God by claiming to be God. Look at John 5, 22 and 23. Moreover, the father judges no one. In fact, he's entrusted all judgment to the Son, the great judge of each and every one of our lives, judging according to his written word, Jesus then illustrating it as the living word, is going to be Jesus himself. And it says, he's given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, this is the Bible. It's saying he wanted people to worship him as they worship the Father. He was calling himself God. Look at John 8, 5, 5, 8, 8, John 8, 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if you don't know much about the Bible, that you could miss this, but Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus lived. And with a straight face, he's talking to people and he's saying, before Abraham, I am. I mean, we just read by that and we go, yeah, 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 next what would you do? What would your reaction be if I stood on this platform and I said, before George Washington, I am. In fact, I was Martha's first husband. I mean, wouldn't you think 
he's a lunatic. Jesus made this claim before Abraham exists, who walked thousands of years before I'm now speaking, I existed. In fact, I created Abraham. That's, an, that's a remarkable claim, crazy claim, bizarre claim. Look at John 14, 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to get to know God if you know me, because I am God. He's making the claim. And one last one. He did something that only God can do. Mark 2, 5. Son, your sins are forgiven. People were ticked off at him for saying this because they said only God can forgive sins. Who are you to forgive sins? And then he performed a miracle, as we're going to see in a few moments, that, that proved that he had the power of God to forgive sins. But he's made the claim now. I'm God. I want you to worship me as God. Based on his claims, if we're thinking people, if we turn our brain on and we look at this issue, there are really only three possible conclusions we can make. And though it's very logical, I didn't, I didn't make this up. The first time I heard this idea was from C.S. Lewis. I don't know who he, who he heard it from the first time, but, but there are really only three possible conclusions to who Jesus was based upon his claims. He was either a liar, telling people he was something he wasn't, God, or a lunatic, believing himself because he was so self-deluded that he was God, or he was who he said he was, right? God the Lord. There are, there are only three possibilities, liar, lunatic, or Lord. And we have to look at this and we have to decide. When we look at who Jesus was, when we look at all the evidence of who Jesus was, we have to say, was he a liar? Was he a lunatic or was he Lord? Which is the most reasonable? Which is the most intelligent? If we're going to get to the right conclusion, figure this out, then we have to consider his character. Because if his character's messed up, then it's very likely he's just a liar, right? And in the Bible, we find in John chapter 8, verse 46, he was speaking to a crowd, and they weren't buying into what he was saying, and so he kind of stopped, and he says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I'm, if I'm telling you the truth then, if you can't prove me guilty of sin, if you can't prove me to be a liar, then, then why don't you believe me? And we just, once again, read through the Bible so quickly that we, I think, miss what's really going on. I mean, we have to apply it to our real lives. He staying there and people weren't buying in. People were discounting what he was saying and dismissing it. And so he says, hey, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Can any of you prove me to be a liar? And you can kind of see the pause. Can any of you see, point out my mess-ups? And because there were only crickets and no one said anything, then he says, all right, then if you can't show me as a liar, then why don't you trust that I'm telling you the truth? Now, this is a pretty bold thing to say, right? I mean, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I, I would never ask that out loud from this platform. I wouldn't do it because the lines would be three miles long for people wanting to speak. Can any of you, my wife would be first. Yeah, let me start, you know, at the very beginning. You're an idiot. You know, I mean, it's like, can anyone prove me guilty of sin? But no one could in that moment. And so he said, then you should trust what I say. The people walking with him in that day, the people who knew him best, whether they accepted him or not, couldn't prove him a liar. Is it reasonable to conclude he is one from this distance? Look at what he says in Hebrews 4.15 through the writer of the book of Hebrews. Jesus has been tempted, tested, tried in every way, just as we are, but there was one difference with him. He never failed. He was without sin. He never made the wrong choice. 
The Bible was written by people who walked with him. They knew the story. My, look, look, I've been married 35 years. My wife knows me very, very well, inside and out, and she loves me. She, she wants people to know me as she knows me. She would want to paint me in positive lights, but if I was to die and she was to write something about my life, this I know, though she would try and paint it positively, she wouldn't try to paint me as perfect. That would be an impossible task. And it would be the same of you. We might love you. There are people who love you and they'd want to give great perceptions of your life, but they couldn't paint you as perfect because you're not. But those who knew him best inside and out painted him as perfect. Why? There's only really one logical explanation. Either they were liars and lunatics or they were telling the truth. It's what they really thought. They don't come off as liars or lunatics when you read their writings. But it's not just them. During the lifetime of those who were witness to his story, even those who rejected him, the writings of those saying that he was without guilt and without sin came out, and they were never in any kind of credible way challenged. They were accepted. So it's reasonable to believe that, wow, it's true. This guy was different than us without guilt. Liar, lunatic, or who he said he was. If we're going to come to the right conclusion, if we're going to be reasonable about it, then we have to consider his teaching, right? His teaching. What did he say? What did he teach? What was the impact of that? And look, look at just one portion. We could spend a ton here, but look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. It says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of law, that he taught us one who knew what he was talking about and wasn't afraid to declare a truth. It's saying he didn't water down truth. He didn't walk around truth as so as not to offend, so as to draw a crowd. In fact, we find very often he's speaking truth and crowds are leaving him. He spoke the uncompromised truth in love. Now, for me, it's interesting to note that he was the most loving and gracious teacher in history. I mean, he loved people. He was devoted to people. His compassion and generosity was obvious. I mean, he was a loving teacher. And yet, he and his message were so hated that he was ultimately nailed to a cross and killed. Why? If he was this loving and gracious teacher who was willing to embrace and love the, the worst person on the planet, how come he was hated so much that they were willing to nail him to a cross? Well, the reason is simple. He wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear. He wasn't pandering to their accepted beliefs and traditions, their views of political correctness in their culture, because, because he genuinely loved people. He told them the whole truth when it felt good, and sometimes it does feel good to tell the truth, and when it didn't feel all that good. And often telling the truth can feel contrary to what we want, very uncomfortable. He told the truth, the whole truth, all the time. In fact, in one of Jesus' most compassionate moments, one of his most loving moments, there was a woman who was caught in adultery. I mean, caught in the very act of adultery and dragged out of that bed of adultery in, you know, an unclothed manner and was thrown at his feet by religious haters and religious bigots wanting her to be killed for her sin. And he challenged them by saying, all right, he who is without sin, you cast that first stone. And one by one, they walked away. And then he in love did something that religious leaders wouldn't do in that day. He reached down to this woman in this unkempt state, in this state of failure. And he helped her stand up. 
He literally saved her life. And in this tender moment of unbelievable compassion, he still spoke the truth. He said, go and sin no more. Because he loved her, he didn't cover up the, cover up the reality of her sin. Because he loved her, he still called her out on her sin, even though he was loving her. He didn't pretend that she wasn't living a life contrary to truth. Because he loved her. And in his ministry, because he taught this way, so different than an ordinary human being, in his ministry, because he told the whole truth with whole compassion, multitudes walked away from him because they didn't like what he was telling them, the truth, even though it was in love. It's kind of weird, and I know this is going to seem like it's out of left field, but it, this really reminds me of my grandma. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean... My grandma was a great lady. I loved her a great deal, but she was interesting, unique. And my grandma wouldn't go to the doctor because she was afraid the doctor would find out she was sick and tell her. And I'm not kidding. She wouldn't go to the doctor. I said, Grandma, that's kind of the point. You go to the doctor, they find out if you're sick, and if there's something they can do about it, they can make you better. But if you don't find out, you'll never get better. And she goes, I'd rather not know. Now, that's very human, isn't it? Who wants bad news? I don't want bad news. I don't want to go to the doctor and then say, hey, sorry to tell you this. Your wife's going to collect on that insurance policy, you know? I mean, who wants bad news? No one does. That's very human. It just doesn't make sense. Because if you don't know the truth, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's kind of the same thing here with Jesus. You see, people wanted Jesus to tell them they were okay, even when they weren't. And it's human. Who wants someone to say, you know, I know these choices and the things you've made are really who you are now, but, but you're wrong. Who wants to hear that, but yet we all need it? How would you feel if you found out that you were dying of a disease that could have been treated if caught in time, but a doctor who knew you were sick, didn't tell you because they wanted to spare your feelings. They wanted you to feel happy leaving their office instead of sad. How would you feel about that doctor? Well, let's take it further. What would you think of a doctor who told every patient that came into their office that they were okay, even if they were going to die? Would you think that doctor was loving? Isn't it great that he made them feel good? Would you think this was a good doctor? Everyone leaves happy. He must be a good doctor. Or would you think that doctor was a criminal? I think I know the answer. Well, in the spiritual world, there are a lot of people just like that criminal doctor being held up and celebrated, telling people what they want to hear. Everything's okay. You're good. I'm good. We're all okay. The only problem is it's not true. Jesus wasn't that kind of spiritual teacher. He always told the truth in love. And of course, as his followers, we're called to do the same. But when you look at his teaching, you have to decide, is this one that looks like a liar or a lunatic or more like the Lord? You only have those three options. If you're going to make the right conclusion about Jesus, then you have to consider his miracles. You have to consider his miracles. And his miracles were all around. It's, you, you couldn't have seen Jesus or known Jesus or heard about Jesus without hearing about his miracles. Now today, of course, we love to say, oh, come on, that was made up. But no, these were written in the day in which he lived, and there is no credible, credible evidence whatsoever that they weren't true. 
Jesus himself said it. You can read it on your own, but there's a story in Matthew 11, 2 through 6, about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had said, you're the one, you're the Messiah, but he was thrown in prison and it started to create doubts in his life, so he sent followers to Jesus to ask him the question, are you really the one? And this was Jesus' answer. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. I mean, you see what's going on. You hear what's going on. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and and all of this done in the context of God's good news, God's truth being proclaimed to the poor. He says, you hear and see it, you know what I'm doing. Go and tell him. John will know it's God. One of my favorite stories of Jesus telling miracles is my favorite story because it kind of helps me to identify how we as humans look at miracles and kind of misjudge what's really important. There were these four friends in Mark chapter 2 of a guy who was paralytic. He was sick and couldn't recover. And so these four friends carried their friend to where Jesus was. And where Jesus was was a multitude of people. And he, they were just surrounding a house. And inside the house was absolutely full. And there was no way to get their friend to Jesus. So they came up with a creative plan. Got to love passion. They went up on the roof of the house and they broke off the, the roof and they lowered Jesus down in. If you ever try and do that to my house, I sue you hide. I sue you hide. I mean, it's going to, you're done. But, but that's what they did, right? And they lowered him down. And what did they want for this guy? They wanted Jesus to heal him. They wanted him to get up and walk. I mean, they wanted a miracle. They wanted a miracle. And so what did Jesus do? All the crowds looking, what will Jesus do? What will Jesus do? And Jesus went, son, your sins are forgiven. Put yourself in the story. You know what the crowd did, right? Boo! I don't want his sins to be forgiven. I want the guy to stand up and walk. Come on, give us a good show. And that's where we pick up. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Okay, so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you can know that when I'm forgiving sins, I'm literally transforming a person's life from the inside out. Let me show you my power. So he said to the paralytic man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And this guy got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. You know, what did they do? Yeah! Isn't it interesting? Jesus reached in and changed this guy's life forever from the inside out, gave him a brand new heart, a brand new life, changed his life for eternity, and everyone was going, boo! And then the guy got up and walked, and everybody's going, yeah! Well, the guy that got up and walked laid down dead again in the future, but because Jesus changed him from the inside out forever for eternity, his life was never the same, which was the great miracle. You see, the greatest miracle was the forgiveness of sins, new life and life change, but no one was impressed, so Jesus confirmed that he had the ability to reach inside of us and change who we are and how we are and what the choices of our lives have defined us to be. He did the greatest miracle, spiritual healing, and then proved he had the power to do it with lesser miracles of physical healing. But when you look at his miracles, what do you have to say? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Those are your only three options. Which is the most reasonable? If we're going to make the right conclusions about Jesus, then we have to consider the fulfillment that he brought to prophecies in the Bible. Now, if you're not really familiar with the Bible, then you wouldn't know prophecy is simply a a declaration of truth. And in the Bible, because God knows beginning from end, he sometimes had people make a declaration of truth that didn't happen yet but would. It was predictive in nature. And they come true. Many were made about who the Messiah would be and who would the Savior be. And this Jesus, who you have to decide, is he a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, 
was the fulfillment of all the predictive prophecies about Messiah. It was prophesied that he'd have a unique birth. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And this was hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. People are saying, well, how will we know when God's fulfilling his great promise? And you need to know the great promise of God, the great promise upon all the promises are all pointing to the great promise of the Savior coming in the world. And God said, I'm going to give you a great sign, a great sign. When I'm going to fulfill this promise, you'll know because the one who comes to fulfill the promise will be born uniquely. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and that will be God with us. Now, there are some people who love to go to Isaiah 7, 14. They love, that word virgin, come on, if you're honest, it can be, in certain circumstances, translated young woman. And that's true. It can be. It means virgin, but it can be, at times, translated young woman. And context, of course, determines the difference. So you help me decide. So God comes down and says, the one promise upon which all of my promises rest. The promise of coming Messiah, the one that I want you to know that there's no doubt, this is the one. I'm going to give you a great sign that it's coming true. A young girl's going to get pregnant and have a kid. God knows that never happens. It's not what's being said here. He's saying a virgin will conceive. And guess what? That's what happens. And there's no credible evidence otherwise. Then it was also prophesied that he would have a unique death. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Though crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet, the idea of crucifixion is pictured here and then again in Psalm 22. But, but the real interesting thing is it's prophesied that he really wouldn't die for himself and his own sins. He'd be dying for other people and for their sins, and that's exactly what happened. Isn't that interesting? But there are a lot of people who say, yeah, you say it's predictive. But come on, the book of Isaiah could have been written after all this stuff happened and then just kind of making it up as they go, or could have changed. But there, there really wasn't a prophecy that it would happen. And that worked until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the Qumran, because the Dead Sea Scrolls proved that Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Jesus, and this prophecy, both prophecies, all prophecies of him in Isaiah were absolutely concrete, and yet this Jesus, who claimed to be God, fulfilled them all. Now, here's the interesting thing. Does that make him look like a liar to you? Is that what's reasonable and intelligent? Maybe a lunatic to you, or does that make the idea that he's Lord a little bit more reasonable than the others? What if he's right? What if you're wrong? If we're really going to get at the answer, then we have to consider his predictions. His predictions, because he predicted some things that would happen. I'll just limit it to two. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and this happened time and time and time again when he was alive, written by those who were with him when he was alive, and not contradicted by those who heard these stories when they were still alive. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed after three days and rise again. And it happened. Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Interestingly enough, he was building his church on a ragtag group of followers, you know, fishermen, tax collectors, you know, kind of a, 
uh, second-class citizens of, of the universe back then. And it was in the time when the Roman Empire owned everything and these people were nothing. And Jesus, Jesus had the audacity to say, I'm going to take this group of people, I'm going to build this group, this community, this family of believers, and, and it's going to conquer the world, not just Rome, but hell itself. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have been betting on that. But what happened? That. The ravings of a madman liar, a madman lunatic, or maybe the declaration of someone who knew, because before Abraham was, he was. Maybe the Lord. If we're really going to make the right conclusion, then we have to look at the impact of his life, his impact. And I think this is incontrovertible, regardless of your view of the world. Jesus changed the world. You might not know this, but there weren't hospitals and orphanages and red crosses. There wasn't compassion in this world until Jesus introduced it. He changed billions of lives from the inside out. He's changed many of your lives. I know he's changed me. And when you put all these things that we've considered together, it would be, in my opinion, unreasonable, unintelligent, ignorant to conclude that he was a liar or a lunatic. And you only have one other choice. It's reasonable and intelligent to conclude that he was who he claimed to be, God, the Lord. It's not something easy to dismiss. You can dismiss it if you'd like. You can claim it's ignorant if you like, but it's not as easy to dismiss as that because no other logical conclusion remains except that he really was God. And that has staggering implications to our lives. This is why I love the song Nicole wrote. What if you're wrong? What if you're saying he didn't exist? What if you're saying he's not who he claimed to be? What if you're wrong? Because if Jesus really is God, then that means we can know God. We can know God. I mean, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what can we know about God? Well, he's relational because Jesus was relational. He's available because Jesus was available. He is relevant because Jesus was relevant. He's trustworthy because Jesus is trustworthy. He's holy because Jesus was holy. He's loving but committed to truth because that's where Jesus was. He's faithful. You can know God if Jesus is really God. And here's the, the thing we need to understand. Knowing him, knowing God is essential if we're going to really find the life that we were created for now and forever. Look at John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It doesn't say this is eternal life, you know, being Catholic or Baptist or Methodist or Wesleyan. This is eternal life. Go to Northridge. Doesn't say that. This is eternal life, that you know God. And the unbelievably great thing that Jesus has shown us is that he's God and we can know him. If Jesus really is who he claimed to be, God, that means we can trust everything Jesus says. Everything he says. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, and once again, this was a truth that, that people hated and dismissed then and now. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way. I'm the bridge. I'm the only way you can know the Father. And back then, they hated that. They killed him for it, even though he said it lovingly. And you know, today's the same thing. People go, that's too narrow. God would never say that. I mean, as long as people are, this is what people say, as long as people are sincere 
in what they believe, God's going to honor that. Doesn't that. I don't know about you, that feels really good to me. As long as we're sincere, it'll get us to the right place. feels so good because sometimes, sincerely, I want to kill people, and if that's true, I can do it and still get there. And sincerely, sometimes I think he wants me to kill them. <laughs> and so that'll be good for me. It's stupid to say as long as we're sincere in what we believe it'll get us there. And yet Jesus, who is the only one who doesn't come off as a liar or a lunatic, but maybe really as the Lord, said, I'm the only way. You might not like that truth. It might not feel good, but that's the truth. And if you say no to God, since he's God and you're not, you've got some problems. I mean, since Jesus is God, we can trust everything he says, but it goes beyond truths like this. It also goes to, we can trust everything he says. So when he says, I'll be with you, even when we feel like he's far away and distant and doesn't care, we can trust that he really is with us. Because he's God, we can trust him when he says, I'll provide, even when we don't see the way he's going to provide. And we can trust him when he says, I'm preparing a place for you so I can come again and we can spend eternity together. You can trust him in whatever he says. And since he's God, that means that we can always depend on him. Always depend on him. We've learned we can't depend on each other. We're going to fail each other, but we can always depend on him. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can depend on him. And when I had this thought about depending on him, I immediately went to Psalm 23. If you don't know much about the Bible, Psalm 23 is one of the great psalms in Scripture, one of the great poems of all time. It's something that's read in dark moments of our lives. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I can always depend on him. That means what David wrote in Psalm 23 is true for me and you. The Lord is my shepherd, I don't have to want. It means that I can depend on the fact that he'll provide for me as a shepherd provides for a sheep, that he'll guide me as a shepherd guides his sheep, that he'll comfort me as a shepherd comforts his sheep, that he'll protect me as a shepherd protects his sheep, that he'll be with me as a shepherd is always with his sheep. It means that he's not a faraway God, but he's an up-close and personal God. As any good shepherd, where I am, there he is, and I can depend on it, and so can you. If he really is who he claimed to be, God, then we can know that he genuinely cares about us even when we feel like no one cares. We can know he genuinely understands us, even when we feel like no one understands because he's God. And that's what the Bible says in Hebrews 4.15. We don't have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, mediating as the bridge between God and us. We know we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who's been tempted and tested and hurt in every way just as we are, except with this exception, he was without sin. I know how you feel because I am one of you. He can identify with our suffering. He can identify with our loss. Our pain and our grief and our loneliness and our despair is not lost on him because he's been there. We can know he cares because he left heaven for one reason. He who pre-existed Abraham, he who created the world, was only in this world as one of us for one reason. He so loved us. He came. And you can cast your cares on him because he cares for you. You can know this. It's staggering what him being God means. 
It means that we can ultimately, and for me, this is the, the whole deal. It means we can experience new life. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, that means I don't have to be locked in who I've made myself to be. You know, every single one of us, we came with this faulty wiring. I mean, we were born through Adam and Eve who rebelled against God, and so we have this faulty wiring, and it evidences itself in different ways in all of our lives, but it evidences itself. We've all made choices, and we've all now become defined by our failures by sinners, and it takes on different pictures, but it's the same thing. Every single one of us have made choices in our life, and our choices are what ultimately have defined who we are. That's who we are now, and we're living in a day where everybody wants to justify who they are, the product of their choices, instead of accepting who Jesus said we were and could be. And Jesus made it possible for us to experience new life, the new life that we all need to take what we've made of ourselves and who we've become and to give us a brand new start. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, they become a new creation. The old gone, the new has come. You see, I am just a messed up failure who has responded to my environment and my world in all the wrong ways, but because Jesus is really God, he's made it possible for me to become someone else, new. And he's done the same for you. In Jesus, we can know that our failures don't have to be final. But there's a caveat here. We can know that our failures don't have to be final if we acknowledge them to him as failures. We can know that he'll forgive us and make us new if we call our failures what they are, sin, and bring them to him as in repentance and faith. What will he do? Forgive us. Look at 1 John 1, verse 9. This is the Bible. This isn't me. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Too many of us don't really understand this verse. Too many of us think it says something it doesn't say. We want it to say, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just and he'll forgive us all. No matter what we do, he's faithful and just. I can hurt you day in and day out and he'll forgive me because he's just. He'll cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. And you can hurt me day in and day out, and he'll just forgive you. We can be the scum of the earth in our choices and our behavior, and he'll just keep forgiving us because he's good and we're not, and he'll cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's just not true. Because you see, he puts the first part of that verse on there. If we confess our sins, confess, if we acknowledge, if we agree with him that we have sinned, that we have defined ourselves by sin, if we acknowledge our sin to him, then he forgives us. Then he forgives. He's willing to forgive anyone for anything, for anything they've ever done, but not until they acknowledge it as sin and failure. It takes confession first. And he's God. He should know. I believe there are many of us here who just think he's just forgiving And he is one that's willing to forgive, but not until we confess. Have you ever done that? Have you ever come to the place where you've said, I am a product of my choices. I am 
a sinner. I have rebelled against him. And if you've ever come to him and confessed it and then repented of that and put your trust in Jesus, if not, this is your moment. Before I finish this talk, I'm just going to pray and I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And I really want you to honor this moment. This isn't exit time, this is prayer time. And so I'm just going to ask you if you'd bow with me in a word of prayer just for a moment. If you're watching on demand, I encourage you to pray with us. And if you've never done this, just pray with me. Just say, God, I don't pretend to understand it all, but I do understand this. I'm broken inside. I'm guilty. And I need you. And Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross not for your sin, but for mine. And you rose again to give me new life. And so I'm praying, God, acknowledging my sin that you would forgive me and give me new life. I'm trusting you. I'm going to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed with me just before I finish this talk, I just really want to encourage you, please let us know you prayed with me. We have some information we want to put in your hands that helps you take next steps in your relationship with God, and we make it really easy. We have this connection card in the program that we handed you when you came in. You just fill it out so we can get the material to you. You check off that circle at the bottom and that little bold panel that says, today you prayed with me to receive Jesus. And then as you're leaving, we have boxes at every single exit. Just throw it in there, and we'll send you this information. If you're watching on demand online, just hit the What Next button. We'll do the same for you. But now as conclusion to the talk, look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony. Here's the story. God has given us eternal life. We can experience life as God originally designed it, now and forever. But this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. With Nicole Nordham, and I join her in saying, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was, what if you're wrong? I'll tell you what if you're wrong. You'll never experience anything God designed for you and desires for you in life. Because here's the conclusion. Our relationship with Christ is the most important issue of our lives. Our relationship with Christ is the most important issue of our lives don't dismiss it without looking at it. And when you look at it, there's only one conclusion to make. There was no way this guy was a lunatic and there's no way this guy was a liar, but boy, it's really possible he was the Lord. And so if you want your life to change, then picture this. Jesus is God. And when you experience him as such, life becomes what he intended it to be. I hope you'll experience it. Just before we split out of here, which is everyone's want, I just want to remind you that Easter's coming. And I just have one request for you in this week, from this weekend to next weekend, one request, and that's for you to start thinking about and praying about who you might invite for Easter this year. And we've come up with this the saying, our mission is to wake the world up to Jesus, to show them his love, tell them his truth, involve them. And, and if we're going to do that, then we have to expose them to it, right? And so we, we've come up with this, this idea. In, it's in your program. It's the whole back thing. Invite someone to Easter for Christ's sake. Now, be careful. Be careful how you say for Christ's sake because you could be cussing if you say it with the wrong tone and emphasis, right? 
but invite someone to Easter for Christ's sake and for theirs. And you might say, oh, that sounds very unchristian. Really, it's very biblical. Do you know what Psalm 106.8 says? He saved us for his name's sake. And so we're wanting to invite, invite people to Easter for Christ's sake, for their sake. And we want you to be praying about and thinking about who you'll invite. And so we gave you this card where you can start jotting down names because every single person you know, every single person in your world will never experience life as God intended until they're able to picture this. Jesus is God, and you could be key to helping them find that truth. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.